Good morning. Good to see some new faces here. Um, anyone who doesn't know me, I'm Pastor Ryan. Uh, if you've never met me before, um, let's try to make it a point to find each other after service. I'd love to shake your hand and learn your name. So we are on our second week in our series on the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. And uh, just so you all know, I am hoping, I'm hoping that we can go through most of the book of Revelation in the coming months, not just the seven letters. But we're going to start with the letters, and then we'll see if we're ready, or more accurately, if I'm ready, uh, to dive into some of the more confusing parts of the book. Um, so we're fully committed to the seven letters, and then we're adopting a wait-and-see approach. Okay, so. Uh, so if you missed last week, I just want to do a little bit of quick review, uh, some of the background details of this book. Uh, it was written by a man named John, who may have very likely been one of Jesus' 12 disciples, the beloved disciple, as he's known, uh, now an elderly man, probably in his 80s, maybe even his 90s. Uh, and it was written around 90 AD, when the church was just uh, 60 years old. And it was written while John was in exile on the island of Patmos. So he uh, was restricted in the amount of influence he could have. Uh, and uh, this, this letter is a recording of a prophetic vision that John had. And in that prophetic vision, John saw the resurrected Jesus in all of his glory. And Jesus told him to write down messages for seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And last week we looked at Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus. This week we're looking at Jesus' message to the church in Smyrna. And if you missed last week, there is one more important detail that I want to repeat. If you have any experience studying the book of Revelation, reading books that people have written about this book, you may have heard people argue that these seven churches represent different stages in the history of the church. Has anybody heard this before? Um, so people will say uh, the church at Ephesus re represents the church from 30 AD to 100 AD, and the church at Smyrna represents the church from 101 AD to 300 AD. This kind of interpretation is actually uh, quite, com quite common. <clears throat> and I just want to reiterate what I said last week, which is I believe that this kind of interpretation is extremely speculative. Extremely speculative, and I would encourage us not to put too much stock in it. You can be sure that the church of Ephesus represents one thing. What does the church of Ephesus represent? The church at Ephesus, right. <laughs> in 90 AD, the church at Smyrna is what? The church at Smyrna. You can take that to the bank. You can count on that. Um, these were real churches in the first century, each dealing with their own unique circumstances, which Jesus' messages address. If we know anything about the, uh, the, the cultural context and the, and the time, what was going on in history, they address those specific concerns that those churches had at that time. They are listed in the same order as the postal route that would have traveled from Patmos all the way to Laodicea. So real churches along a real postal route in the first century. Now, is it possible that they symbolize something more? I guess it's possible. But the book of Revelation doesn't state that clearly. 
So be very cautious about going down these um, interpretive routes that are speculative, okay? That is my caution to all of us. All right, let's look at the message to the church in Smyrna. If you want to follow along in your own Bible, turn to Revelation 2, starting in verse 8. Revelation 2, starting in verse 8. Let's say a quick prayer together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the ability to come together and to worship you and to look at these holy words. And we just pray that as we do that, Lord, that we would encounter you, um, that you would take these words and, and make them go beyond um, their natural strength, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill them and, and uh, that we would be able to recognize uh, the truth that is in them, Lord, and understand it. Give us insight and wisdom, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. So if you couldn't tell from that, the church in Smyrna was a persecuted church. Right? They were afflicted. They were in poverty because of their faith. They were slandered. Some of them were about to be put in prison. And some of them were in danger of experiencing death. They must have been, because otherwise, why would Jesus say, be faithful even to the point of death? To be a follower of Jesus in Smyrna was very risky. It's dangerous. Now, why was that? Well, as we talked about last week, this all takes place in the Roman Empire, right? And at the time, the Roman emperor was a guy who believed himself to be a god on earth. And he expected to be acknowledged as a god. And if you didn't acknowledge him as a god, that was dangerous. Now, what would happen in the Roman Empire is some people, uh, many people, would participate in what was called the emperor cult. They would perform certain rituals to acknowledge the emperor as a god. But there were certain people uh, who were exempt from these rituals. And those were the Jews because the, the Jews had been around for a long time, and fortunately, the empire recognized that they had a conflict. It was, it was a conflict for them to recognize anyone other than Yahweh as God. And so they had this religious exemption from participating in the emperor cult. Now, early Christianity was at first recognized as what? A subgroup of Judaism, right? So as long as Christians were recognized as Jews in the Roman Empire, they had this protection. They weren't going to be forced to worship the emperor or face consequences because they're recognized as Jews. 
But what happened in Smyrna, the Christians there had a real problem because the Jews forced them out of the synagogues and said, you are not real Jews. You're not real Jews, which meant they lost their protection and now they had to choose. Are we going to do these rituals to honor the emperor as God or are we going to face consequences? What are we going to do? That's why Jesus says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Right? He's referring to these Jews who said to the Christians, you guys are not real Jews. And he's saying, actually, they're the ones who are wrong. You're the real Jews, and, and, and they have brought false accusations against you. They don't really represent true Judaism. So that's the situation that they're in. And I want us, for a moment here, to try and envision what it would be like to be in the church in Smyrna right now. Right now, like Jews in the first century, we have religious freedom, right? No one can require us to worship a god other than the god that we choose to worship. But imagine if all of a sudden the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, it was all thrown out the window, and uh, you woke up tomorrow morning and a law was made uh, that said every church and synagogue and temple in America before your a religious service, before your weekly religious service, you have to sing a hymn of worship to Lord Donald Trump. Imagine if that happened. And, and imagine if it was said, if you don't comply, then you will face consequences. You could be fined. You could have your church building taken away from you. You could be imprisoned. Maybe you could even be tortured. And before anyone gets bent out of shape, okay, I'm not saying I, I think this is about to happen, okay? <laughs> this is a thought experiment, okay? It's trying to get our, our heads in the minds of the Smyrna church. But what would we do if we lost our right to worship freely? What would, what would we do if we had to acknowledge some president or some leader, some human leader as a god, or face consequences? What would we do? Sorry, I'm making a little extra noise. Okay. What would we do? Well, I'm sure that some Christians would say, I'm sorry. I cannot worship anyone other than God alone. And so I'm just going to have to face whatever consequences that leads to. But you know what? I think if that happened, I think a lot of people would say, it's way too dangerous to break this law. Let's not rock the boat. Let's not cause controversy. We'll just sing our song of worship at the start of service, and then we'll worship the real God for the rest of the service. And God will know we don't really mean that first song anyway, right? And then I think other people, they might say something like, well, what's really important is that we are good, loving people. So as long as we're good and loving, it's okay to sing that song at the start of the service. It's just words anyway, right? But what I want us to notice is Jesus doesn't say anything like that to the church in Smyrna, does he? He doesn't say, worship the emperor a little bit so that you can stay safe. It's okay, just be good people, just be loving people. No, he says, be faithful to me. Be faithful even to the point of death. For many people in our culture today, I think for many people who go to church, 
This kind of faith makes no sense. This kind of faith that is faithful even to the point of death, even if it means suffering. And I can think of two reasons for that, two reasons why Smyrna faith doesn't make sense to many in our culture today. And I actually talked about the first reason when we did our series on Daniel this summer, and we looked at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some of you might remember that, but I know many of you were not there for that. So, uh, quick, quick recap. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told by the king of Babylon, you have to bow down to this statue, and if you don't, you'll be thrown into a fiery furnace. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, you know what, we believe that our God can save us from the fiery furnace, and we think he will. But you know what, even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down and worship your statue. We're not going to do it. In other words, they said, even if our faithfulness to God leads us to a point of death, we are not bowing down. And when we looked at that story, you might remember that I said that kind of faith makes no sense to many people because for many people, faith is simply this. Faith is a way of gaining favor with God so that we can live long and comfortable lives. Faith is a way of gaining favor with God so that we can live long and comfortable lives. Now, if that's all our faith is about, like it's something that we do, some rituals that we participate in because we think it's going to help our bank account to grow or we think it's going to make the cancer go away. If that's all it is, okay, then the moment our faith leads us to a point where we're called to suffer in some way, we're going to abandon it. The moment it leads us to a fiery furnace, we're out, right? Because it's no longer serving its purpose for us. It's no longer helping to make us comfortable. It's no longer helping to ensure that we're going to live a long life. So what Jesus says to the church in Smyrna should challenge us to ask the same question that the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego should inspire us to ask, which is, is my faith more than just a means to living a long and comfortable life? Is it deeper than that? Is it something more significant than that? I realize this is a hard message, but this is the truth. If it's not something more than that, then it's not the faith of the New Testament. It's something watered down, it's incomplete. So that's the first reason this kind of faith that Jesus is talking about is hard for many people to understand. Here's the second reason. It's because for many of us, faith is primarily a means to becoming a good and moral person. Faith is primarily a means to becoming a good and moral person. For those who see faith in this way, Jesus is a tool for promoting kindness and social cohesion and love. That's the primary purpose. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? Faith in Jesus should absolutely lead to those things. It absolutely should make us more loving people. It, actually, it absolutely should help to preserve our society and make our world a better place to live. You know, that's what we talked about last week. Remember, the whole message to the church of Ephesus was, no matter how perfect your doctrine is, if you don't have love for people, you have nothing. 
If you don't have love for people, your church has a critical flaw, and it's not the real church. Okay, so love is so, so important. Don't take me wrong, you know, what I'm saying here. But the biblical faith is, more, is about more than just becoming a good, moral, loving person. It is about more, more than that. If that's all it's about, then why would Jesus say to the Smyrnans, be faithful even till death? Why would he say that? Because the Smyrnans, I mean, they could burn some incense to the emperor or sing a song to the emperor and still be loving and nice people, right? Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. The kind of faith that is faithful even to the point of death makes no sense to so many people because there's something missing from so many of our understandings of faith. What is that thing that's missing? Biblical faith isn't just a means to getting what we want, to enriching life, although it is something that enriches our life, absolutely. And it isn't simply a way to be more moral and more loving. What is it? Biblical faith is about recognizing who the true king is. It's about recognizing who the true king is. Our faith is an answer to the question, who who is the Lord of my life? Who is the highest authority in my life? Who's the one who deserves my allegiance and my worship? And true Christianity answers those questions by saying, Jesus, Jesus is Lord. And he alone deserves worship and allegiance. He is our king. He's not just someone who gives us things we want. He, he does that sometimes, but, and he's not just a moral teacher, he, although he is that, but he is our king. Okay? Quite a few years ago, I knew a guy who hit a low place in his life. And without any prodding from anyone, he started coming to church, he started praying, and it really seemed like the Holy Spirit was doing something in his heart. I I think the Holy Spirit was drawing him uh, to himself. And uh, I asked him if he wanted to meet a few times to do some Bible study, and so we did. And at one of those meetings, he told me uh, that he had started dating someone who was not a follower of Christ. And he was kind of processing this decision out loud, you know, his rationale for for this choice. And he said something that has always stuck with me. Uh, He said, I don't think there's anything wrong with us having different religions. I mean, why should that come between us? It's just our religion. And when he said that, I thought, oh, he doesn't get it yet. Because aside from the question of whether or not it was wise for him to date this woman, let's just shelve that for now, okay. Aside from that, my concern was that he saw his faith as just my religion, right? Like it was no more significant than a food preference or which sports team they rooted for, you know? Oh, you like vanilla, honey, I like chocolate. (laughs) We'll, We'll get over it. But the kind of faith that the Bible calls us to, it's not like a food preference, right? The kind of faith that Jesus calls us to can be a source of division. It can be, because biblical faith is rooted in the recognition that Jesus is our king. 
Right? And if you have two people who try to make a life together, but they each have different kings, different ultimate authorities, that can be difficult to navigate, right? That can, that can create issues. That's not easy. When we understand the kind of faith that the Bible calls us to, we can never just call it just my religion, right? It's not just anything. It's everything. Let's imagine that the solar system is a visual representation of your life. Biblical faith would say that your sun, the center of everything that holds everything together, is supposed to be the recognition that Jesus is Lord. That is the truth that every other part of your life is supposed to orbit around, to be guided by, be surrendered to. That is the truth that should have gravitational pull in your life to order everything else. But when my friend said, well, it's just my religion, that was a sign that he saw his faith more like Pluto than the sun. And Pluto is not the center. I mean, it's not even a planet anymore. Right? It's just <laughs> something on the outskirts. It hardly has any gravitational pull at all. And a faith that's more like Pluto than the sun isn't the kind of faith that will ever say, I refuse to worship the emperor, even if that leads to consequences, right? Until we recognize this idea that faith is about Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, you know, until we recognize that Jesus' letter to the Smyrnans, it's never going to make any sense to us. And a lot of the Bible is never going to make any sense to us. Now, I realize that some of you may hear what I'm saying and think, you know what, I'm a little uncomfortable <laughs> with the way you're talking right now. All this talk about Jesus as king and the ultimate authority, it just it sounds kind of fanatical. It sounds a little crazy. But if you're thinking that, Here's what I would encourage you to consider. All of us have to decide who or what is going to be the ultimate authority in my life. I don't care who you are. I believe you make a decision about that. Who or what is going to be the ultimate authority in your life? Is it going to be you? Like, myself? I'm the ultimate authority? Your country's government? Is that going to be the ultimate authority? Your parents? Your friends' opinions, the Democratic platform, the Republican platform. Some people might say, oh, science. Science is my ultimate authority. Problem, though, is that science can never answer questions of morality, of right and wrong. Right? Science can teach you to build a bomb. Can't tell you whether or not to use it. So if somebody says, oh, my ultimate authority is science, I say, eh. I don't think you're being completely honest. I think you're looking to something else to answer questions of right and wrong and ultimate meaning and value, right? Science is great, but it, it can't answer those questions. But anyway, we all have to answer this question. Who or what is going to be the ultimate authority in our lives? Who is going to be our Lord? Who's going to be our King? And no answer to that question is more freeing, more true, and more life-giving than the answer, Jesus. Jesus will be my king. Anything else that we look to for ultimate authority 
is going to lead us towards a much more harmful form of fanaticism, a form of fanaticism that our souls are not designed for. Now, the church at Smyrna understood all this, right? They recognized Jesus as Lord. They recognized we can't recognize anybody else as Lord, and that was leading to persecution. And Jesus told them several things to give them strength to endure, and they're things that I think can help give us strength to endure. Look at what he says in verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Notice he doesn't say, don't be afraid, you won't suffer. That would be nice if Jesus always said that, right? But no, he says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. You're going to suffer, but don't be afraid. I think those words have relevance, not just for the Smyrna church, but for all of us who are followers of Jesus. Because all of us are going to experience suffering in life, right? None of us are immune. Jesus never promises that life will be easy. In fact, he promised the opposite. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. It's not the kind of promise that you see in one of those, the promises of Jesus books with like flowery writing on it. But it's true, right? In this world, you will have trouble. That's what he said. But Jesus also says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of those difficulties. Don't be afraid of that suffering that's ahead of you. Don't be filled with anxiety about the pains and disappointments that might occur or that probably will occur. Even if severe suffering is clearly looming on your horizon, just like it was for the church in Smyrna, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why not? <laughs> Why not be afraid? Because, Jesus says to the Smyrnans, you are safe. Ultimately, you are safe. You may not be safe in the immediate sense, you're in danger in the immediate sense. But in the ultimate sense, you are safe. Why? Because there is a crown of life that's waiting for you after death. And because he who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. I love those two little words, at all. Will not be hurt at all. Second death, what's that about? Did you know there's two deaths? The Bible talks about two deaths. The first death is what most of us think about when we think about death, right? But what many people don't know is the Bible actually teaches that first death is not permanent. It's not permanent. The Bible teaches that one day Jesus is going to return to earth in his glory. That's a big theme in the book of Revelation. There are passages about that that hopefully we'll look at in the future. And when Jesus returns in his glory, he's going to fulfill God's plan for history. And part of that plan is to establish God's perfect, everlasting kingdom on earth. You remember when Jesus first shows up on the scene in the Gospels, what is he saying? He's saying the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. Well, one day that kingdom is going to be fully realized on earth. And when that happens, when Jesus returns in his glory, the Bible teaches that all those people who have died are going to be raised to life again. 
raised to life, similar to the way that Jesus raised to life. But if any of those people who are raised to life refuse to recognize Jesus as Lord, then they can't be part of that everlasting kingdom. How can you be part of an everlasting kingdom where you refuse to recognize the king as the king, right? That doesn't work. And those who refuse to recognize Jesus as king will experience what's called the second death, which, as far as I can understand it, is really much worse and much more permanent than the first. So what Jesus is telling the church at Smyrna is this, if you are faithful to me, if you recognize me as Lord, you don't have to worry about the second death. And you know what? If you don't have to worry about the second death, you really don't have to worry about the first. You're going to be part of my everlasting kingdom forever. You're going to be okay. In the ultimate sense, you are safe. After the first death comes a crown of life. In each of these seven letters, Jesus is very intentional about describing himself in a way that is helpful to that particular church. You'll notice when he introduces himself in each of these letters, he says something a little bit different. And to the church in Smyrna, he starts by saying, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. Who died and came to life again. You see, Jesus is emphasizing that aspect of himself. Why? Because the Smyrnans are facing death, facing the first death, right? And he wants to help them to understand why they don't need to be afraid of that. See, when Jesus talks about the first and the second deaths, we have reason to trust him because he went through the first death, and now he's here talking to us, right? When Jesus talks about being faithful even to the point of death, we can trust him because he was faithful even to the point of death, and he's still here to talk about it. When Jesus says, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer, we can take that seriously because he suffered really beyond anything that we can fully comprehend, and yet here he is now alive and healed and glorious. Now, I don't think any of us here today are in a situation where faithfulness to Jesus is endangering our lives. I highly doubt that, thankfully. But I'm confident most of us, maybe even all of us, are facing some kind of trial right now, right? That's the way life is. If stats are accurate, at least one in four of us here are struggling with an anxiety disorder. Some of us are suffering now, and some of us know that serious suffering is looming on the horizon. And if we fall into any of those categories, we need to hear these words this morning, these words to the Smyrna church, and recognize, this is for me too. Do not be afraid. Be faithful. A crown of life is waiting. The second death will not hurt at all. The true king who is dead and is now alive says so. Let's pray. Lord, 
this letter is a challenging letter. But I pray uh, that if it makes us uncomfortable, Lord, you would, you would help us to recognize that ultimately it is good news, Lord, because it tells us that the one who is the true king, the one who deserves to be recognized as Lord and ultimate authority, is also the one who conquered death and can give us life, abundant life forever. Lord, help us to recognize that and help us to recognize and live out of the truth that you are Lord and you are King. Not just a good moral teacher, not just a means to a nice life, but the King. In Jesus' name, amen.